Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 21, the Death by Octopus edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's show, the release of The Fault in Our Stars, a romance about teenagers with terminal cancer, has us wondering how to get around our cultural resistance to feel bad cinema. Our second segment considers a recent proposal by Cinepux Odeon to priced seating like airline tickets, which has been met with resistance. That particular idea sounds doomed, but what should theater chains do to keep people coming to the movies? The game this week is The Crying Game, a multiple-choice quiz about tearjerkers. And we wrap it up, as always, with our quick-fire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. John Green's YA novel The Fault in Our Stars was an unexpected sensation, in part because it has none of the adventure elements that have spurred the biggest YA phenomena, and in part because it's a romance between kids with terminal cancer. The film adaptation comes out today, with Divergent star Shailene Woodley in the lead role, and it's poised to be a big hit. Though there's precedent for this, namely the sappy Ryan O'Neill, Ali McGraw hit Love Story from 1970, it's not always easy to convince people to see movies that are quote-unquote downers. 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture on almost uniformly rave reviews, but many professed a fear of its intensity, and the film only grossed a little north of $55 million in the U.S. And in Slate, Julia Turner wrote a piece on how she finally steeled herself into watching Schindler's List, but she and her guests took a taco break in the middle of it. <laughs> Why is it so hard for us to watch movies that make us feel bad? Here to help me answer that question is... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phelps. And? Noel Murray. Okay, uh, Noel, let's start with you. Uh, do you see the resistance to seeing feel-bad movies as a relatively new phenomenon? And why might something like The Fault in Our Stars be the exception? I don't know if it's that, that new a phenomenon. I, I do know that I've experienced in recent years uh, friends of mine sharing stories of the problems they've had, getting other friends to see, like, 12 Years a Slave. I have a, a, so a colleague of my wife's, a college professor, who, who was stumping so hard for 12 Years a Slave among the faculty and just and you know complained to me that he couldn't get anybody to go see it. These are college professors you know, yeah. in, in the English department. These are people who like, you know, assign serious novels for their students to read. And yet the idea of them seeing a movie about slavery, they just, he just couldn't get them to do it. And I, I don't know whether that's because people have a, you know, an, they have a limited amount of time to spend watching things, I guess. And so if they're going to watch a movie, a lot of times they say, this is my time to be entertained or to escape or whatever. Um, but that said, I think some of the most memorable movies for people are the ones that make them cry. And not, and not even like great classic films, but stuff like Steel Magnolias or Beaches or, you know, these movies people bond over because they they cried at them. Um, and those are the ones that they they think of as their favorites. And so, I don't know, I, I, I think there may be a hump to get over, but once, once people get over that hump, I think that they end up getting a lot out of these films. What do you think, Tasha? I certainly don't think it's a new phenomenon. I mean, I look back to, I think the the earliest one I was I was definitely aware of it with was uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. The idea that uh, a studio would look at a film and say, nope, too much of a downer, change the ending. You know, the idea of the studio mandated ending goes way, way, way back. And that's, you know, built out of a perception that audiences don't want to see movies with unresolved endings or ha- unhappy endings, or even endings where, that don't end like with a, a happy romantic liaison between the two leads. Like Breakfast at Tiffany's, the book is not an immensely depressing book, 
but you know they don't get together at the end and, and you can't do that in the film so you know you have this horrible tacked on ending that doesn't make any sense in the movie and that just I mean for dead like literally decades of my life I was like eh, you know American films those are the ones that always have happy endings because we can't take it otherwise and you know you want to see something that isn't a happy doesn't have a happy ending you go see a foreign film so no I, I definitely don't think it's new and I think that Noel has uh, hit the nail on the head with the idea that people see movies more as escapism than books um, and I can see those classic professors being like, you know, you know, of course you read Tess of the Durbervilles and it's uh. just, it's basically this woman, you know, being hit on the head by society over and over and over <laughs> for 800 pages. But oh, I certainly don't want to go see 12 Years a Slave. That sounds sad. And I, a part of that may just be the intensity of movies, you know, at 12 Years a Slave is a grueling emotional experience, but it's also it's very personal it's very intense you know you're you're right up there in the characters faces experiencing things along with them tests of Durbervilles, when i read it you know i'd read read 50 pages and walk away i'd read 50 pages and i wouldn't go have a taco break but <laughs> you know it took me a month to read that book and during did that did you have tacos during that month possibly <laughs> but i not not in a formalized way okay. it, they weren't formal tacos <laughs> So I, I think there's that feeling, that, that fear of being trapped in a, in a theater with more emotion coming at that you than you can handle in a way that you can't just decathect from the way you can with a book. I think we're actually in some ways talking about two different things here, though, because all the tweets I've seen leading up to the to, to, to Faulkner Stars is basically like going to see Faultner Stars, bringing handkerchiefs, you know, <laughs> uh, there's sort of like, it's sort of the expectation we're going to go see this weepy movie. And, and you know, there's a tradition of, you know, of weepies and, 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 and and uh, movies that that uh, are designed interior jerkers that um, kind of lives on. Where Twelve Years a Slave is a tough tougher sell because it is uh, not only a, an intense, violent film, but about something in which a lot of you know that touches directly on 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 uh, our history as as Americans. Uh, and uh, uh, it's going to make anyone watching it uncomfortable for for multiple reasons. And people kind of want to opt out of that experience. Um, it was it was tough, like selling Twelve Years a Slave, trying which was my favorite movie of last year. Uh, it's kind of you know, kind of have to say like, look, here's thing it's really intense it's really unpleasant it's also a movie with a really strong narrative and a, and a great piece of filmmaking and great acting that tells a story it is part of what makes it work is is, is, is it approaches these things on a very human level but i don't know i don't know if that was actually successful in getting anyone into the theater with that particular pitch but um but i don't know i guess maybe people want to avoid unpleasant experiences if it looks unpleasant versus merely sad uh they're less likely to buy the ticket yeah, there is a little of that quality of, all right, so you want me to pay to feel something unpleasant that is also going to bring up a great deal of, of guilt and hurt. <laughs> right. But I guess there's a yeah. difference in terms of just tears. I mean, what, you know, you, you, could, you cry during The Fault of Our Stars, you cry during 12 Years a Slave, but it's a different sort of feeling that you get from both, right? And that well, and one's a feeling yeah, that you, no, that no. One's a feeling that you, that, that, that is kind of, is a, is a form of escapism, perhaps? You know, I mean, you are escaping into, you know, a, a romance, uh, and then one one is certainly, uh, you know, a much more disturbing, confrontational thing. And Fault in Our Stars, I think, really is being sold as a, more a, a quirky teen romance than the depressing film where everybody dies. I mean, the if you look at the ads for that, it it is not being sold as a, a grueling, depressing movie. It's being sold at bit as bittersweet at absolute worst. I, I think it's a fair distinction that Keith is making, though. I guess between 
the movie that's merely a weepy versus the movie that actually makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, you look at something like E.T., for example, you know, you'll, you'll sob during E.T., or I'll sob during E.T., <laughs> um, you know, or, or, or Rudy. You know, I, I cry at the end of Rudy, but it's a different kind of crying. It's a sort of a, it's a purgative, you know, uh, way of releasing uh, emotion that may be different than the kind of crying that you have in some of these other films. Although, you know, obviously the definition of tragedy is to have that sort of catharsis where you uh, experience the emotion vicariously through art and that you feel better after it's over. So I, I go back to what I said before, you know, is it just that people don't know that they want this, but that they actually would want this if they experienced it? Well, some people just plain don't want it. And I, when I say some people, I mean my mother, who <laughs> for many, many years now has basically accused me of only liking depressing films. Because, you know, I come home for Christmas and I bring a big stack of uh, prestige movie screeners. And at the end of the year is when all the sad films come out, when all the, the movies that are allowed to have depressing endings come out. So I come home, you know, with a stack of, of Wendy and Lucy kind of films. And if, <laughs> if she catches Lucy, me, old, old Yeller. Hey, uh, hey Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, I don't make them watch them. There, there, was, there was the one year we all went to see the piano together. And, and after that, I was told I was never allowed to pick the Christmas movie again. I picked, I picked uh, Brenna Porte as, as a Christmas movie one year. Hey, the, year the year before the piano, it was uh, Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> so you can see why they don't let me pick the movies. But my, I mean, my mother does not want to experience unpleasant things. My mother wants to experience happy things. She doesn't want us to talk about, you know, politics or, or sad things in general. She wants to go see happy movies where people are happy. Those people do exist. I think it's hard for us as as film critics to relate to the people, the, the the massive amount of people out there. But, you know, if you have trouble relating, go rewatch Solon's Travels. I mean, that's what that film is about, is, you know, the desire to only experience, like, happy, fun, uplifting movies because they take you out of your life. Yeah, well, one question that I had for you all, though, is, is this, is that, you know, 12 Years a Slave made $55 million here, but was a big hit internationally, making another $131 million overseas. Is this an American problem? And does this have to do with how we are weaned as viewers? I, I don't know. I, I'd, be, I'd, be really, I'd really be reluctant to make that leap um, but just based on that one statistic. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, certainly there comedy plays uh, everywhere, action plays everywhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe someone else can... Uh, can uh, it's an American problem. Yeah. 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 Well, look at The Vanishing. Look at the two versions of The Vanishing and tell me that that's not just a, a case in point for, you know, Americans can't handle a, a good, solid downer ending. Well, there's also, there's also a question of scale, though, because just, you know, to be financially successful, a, a, a most your average European film does not have to make as much money as a Hollywood film. So, you know, Hollywood films have to appeal to a wider audience than something that's uh, made in, in Denmark. My, my, my question, though, is, I mean, has anybody actually crunched the numbers on whether, like, say, if they had made the, made the American Vanishing with the original ending? Because, you know, you know the, the remake didn't make a lot of money anyway. I mean, if they'd made the, the right way to begin with, who knows how it would have done. So I'm wondering whether it's just people presume that Americans won't actually see something with an unhappy ending, uh, or if the you know because a test a test screening is one thing. You, you show it you show an audience a movie and and you say to them, "Would you like to see a happier ending?" I think the gut reaction to a lot of people is going to be, "Yes, I definitely want to see a happier ending." <laughs> That's a good but point. does that mean they really want it, or is that just well, just their their feeling at that particular point in time? Would you like to be happier right now than you are? Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like something that tells exactly. you life is not as miserable as you think it is? <laughs> though I, I actually I do feel though that uh, maybe that in, the, in that the case of that movie specifically I don't think it 
gets changed today. I, I feel like the I think like we're maybe more accepting of that genre, but that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, but I think it is a, a matter of scale. I mean, uh, you know, there are. Uh, there are Tasha's moms all over the world, I'm sure, uh, and they're seeing American films, probably, right? I mean, the, uh, not you know the, whatever the Darden brothers have come up with next, right? I mean, it's a uh, um, so it is a matter of, of of scale and having to um, you know how much a studio at this point, how much studios are really willing to invest in in, in movies and what they can expect from them. I mean, Fault in Our Stars strikes me as a it's a real anomaly. I mean, this is this is what, what what's like it now? What's the last studio film? Uh, that well, I mean, maybe you can talk about Nicholas Sparks movies being in, in this category. But I mean, but... we also haven't seen what kind of money it's going to make. Like, right. I, I I wouldn't count your box office before it's hatched. Uh... <laughs> can I say also that the end of the kid with the bike and and uh, the son introduced two, two example of Darden movies actually made me very happy. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe that. Okay. How about uh, Gaspar Noé then? <laughs> uh, just come up with something. Well, so then I have a question for, for the group. Um, has there? Have you ever been scared off uh, by seeing? Have you been scared off of seeing a movie because of its uh, sad, depressing content? Just once, um, and I will cop to that. And as soon as I mention the title, uh, at least two people are going to say, "Oh, you have you have to see that. It's a great movie." Because I've been told, "Oh, you have to see that. It's a great movie." So many times, and you know what? It's probably a great movie. I don't have to see it, and that is "Boys Don't Cry." And the reason that I allowed myself to be scared off for that from that one was, you know, A, I didn't have to see it for any critical reason. I, I wasn't reviewing it. If it had been my job to go see that movie, obviously I would have seen it. Um, nor would I have turned down the assignment if it was given to me because there's a big difference between seeing something professionally and, and seeing something personally. But I chose not to go see it for personal reasons because... I think a lot of people who avoid uh, distressing or, or upsetting films do it out of a personal, uh, you know, essentially, I want to say trigger warning, but that's a very, a very specific formal thing for people with post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I wouldn't say it, it rises to that level. But I know that that film speaks to like a lot of my personal issues with women and with sexuality and with how people are treated because it was based on a true story. I knew all of the beats. I knew how it ended, and I chose not to have that experience. What about you, Keith? I would say that probably nothing. I would, I never skipped anything, any, any movie that once told me is great for that reason, uh, because it looks depressing. But I know uh, there have been plenty of examples that don't come immediately to mind where, where something looks really depressing, and also people are telling me it's not very good, and I'm not reviewing it, so I'll, I'll take a pass on that. What do you think, Noel? Yeah, I, I, I have an answer kind of like Tasha's, um, and I, I can't think of any specific examples. Actually, I think of one example off, off, offhand, and it's a movie that hasn't actually been all that well-reviewed, but it, it's, it's, it's a recent film, uh, Stand Clear of Closing Doors. Mm. Oh, um, right. Yeah, I, I tend to avoid uh, depictions of people with uh, autism or Asperger's on film because my, my son has autism. And it's partly just my sensitivity to how well it's portrayed, but also, I guess, uh, you know, it's just having to encounter... A character um, going through some experiences that my son either has gone through or is about to go through. I don't find it a relatable, uplifting, enlightening experience. I find it really kind of har- kind of harrowing. Um, so and, unless I hear that the movie is is you know extraordinarily good and worth my time, I tend to, I tend to avoid it. It is quite good, I will say. Um, uh, and but yeah, I can see that. And I, I was thinking actually, you know, as we've been talking about the end of Blowout, you know, and about you know, because I can't think of any examples at all. But but you know if something does happen in your life, God forbid, 
uh, you know, what is that? I mean, obviously alters you and it can alter your, your thinking in a very specific way um, and, and, and perhaps turn, turn you off a whole range of movies. But maybe that's a whole, maybe that's a discussion for another day. Uh, Tasha, uh, Keith and Noel, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thanks. A couple of weeks ago, Cineplex Odeon announced plans for a pilot program to see whether customers were willing to pay a little extra money for the best seats in the theater. The chain has enjoyed success with its ultra-AVX cinemas and VIP cinemas, and its spokeswoman likened the new price structure to, quote, an aircraft where you can have your regular coach seating. Then you might want a bit more amenities, so you go into business class, and then you have first class. In an op-ed for The Dissolve, Matt smacked down this idea, starting with the simple truth that people hate flying and wouldn't want that experience in the multiplex. But with the digital age upon us and theater chains struggling to keep people coming to the movies, reserved seating is just one of the many changes we've seen in recent years, along with stadium seating, digital 3D, fake IMAX, Dolby Atmos, gourmet food, and alcohol. Here to discuss the good, the bad, and the desperate in movie amenities are Matt Singer. Hello, Matt. Hi, guys. Uh, uh, Keith Phipps. Hello. And Tasha Robinson. Hi. So I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that asking people to pay more for a middle seat is a bit much. Uh, But what are your thoughts on reserved seating in general, Matt Singer? I mean, I've certainly taken advantage of reserved seating in my day online. You know, you go online, you reserve a ticket, and then you can show up to the movie theater a little bit later. I think the thing that worries me is is when you are starting to charge different prices for different seats in the theater. If you want to reserve this crummy seat on the corner, well, that'll, that's okay. But if you want a good seat where you can actually enjoy the movie, that's going to cost you a bit extra. And, and that's the sort of thing that I find very worrying about uh, the future of, of movie theaters because essentially what you're doing, and this is what I said in the piece, is you're basically kind of making the default experience at the movie theater terrible. You know, like the, 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 the basic experience is going to be bad then. You know, you're going to have to sit on the side or in the front or something like that unless you want to pay extra. Like, the, 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 the base level of a good seat shouldn't be extra. That should be kind of the standard of the experience. Extras, we can discuss what might be a good or a bad extra, but to me, having a seat where you can see the screen without, you know, squinting or craning your neck, that doesn't, to me, qualify as an extra. I'm so not a fan of reserved seating. Just back it up, just reserved seating. I'm so not a fan because my experience is basically uh, nobody sitting in the right seat, ushers coming, having to tell people to move while the movie has started. Um, and, and then also, I, don't, I, I like to, to reserve the right to move because I'm very um, sensitive about you know, people talking and various other distractions, and I, I want to know that I can bail if, if I have to. I have a whole strategy for where I sit in the movie theater that I like to stick with and, and involves at least a couple of different escape plans. So I, I don't know. I'm not a fan at all. Wait, I want to know more about this uh, this theater escape plan. Uh, well, just let's let's get out of the theater. But but like, okay, if they start talking, then I move up two two rows. I'll be fine. You know, I, I'm a sort of, I've become sort of a fan of sitting in the back row in small houses, just because the sight and sound is just as good, and there's no one behind you uh, talking. Or, or, or uh, we really don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I don't think, Tasha. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, that only works if you assume that the theater is empty. And I, I kind of think that the uh, the theater is empty versus theater f- is full thing. Uh, 
makes a huge difference when it comes to talking about uh, assigned seating. Because when uh, Matt's op-ed brought out a lot of commenters with with interesting uh, takes on this whole thing from very widely different directions. And some of the pro-assigned seating people were saying, you know, I would love to be able to show up when the movie starts yes. as opposed to, because some people don't like trailers because they're weird. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I like I think of trailers in the theater as a little bonus, but a lot of people, and I think entirely reasonably, feel like they've paid for an experience and then they're being forced to sit through 10, 20 minutes of ads. So they would like to show up, you know, 10 minutes after the film is quote unquote supposed to start and just miss the first look cinemas and the slides and oh, the, I pay to skip the trailers. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what people are saying. Now, if the theater is going to be full, having somebody pay to show up and get the good middle seat that they want and skip all the stuff they don't want to see, that's perfectly reasonable to me. If the theater is largely empty, I, I went to see Belle um, a couple weeks ago, I guess, at this point, and the, <laughs> there were three people at the door checking tickets, and they wanted me to sit in their assi- my assigned seat even though there were two people in the theater. And they allowed as how it might be okay if I sat somewhere else, but they seemed really worried about it. And that is the kind of thing I want to avoid is that feeling that the empty seat is a higher priority than you are as a consumer because you did not, (laughs) you didn't pay the extra two or three bucks to have the right to sit in the seat that nobody is using. It's kind of like, you know, you, you go to a bar, you go to a show and you get there, you know, an hour before showtime and you're sitting there looking at all of the empty tables that are marked reserved VIP and you're like, I, I got here. Why can't I sit there? And the answer is because somebody's going to roll in two hours from now that paid for that seating. I think people are used to that dynamic and it may, might not be as big of a, a hard sell as people think because they've seen it at restaurants. They've seen it at uh, shows. They've seen it in other other walks of life. But it's something I'm not personally eager for just because I feel like I'm already getting kind of nickel and dimed as they, <laughs> the idea of, of paying more for a, the bigger screen when it's not an IMAX screen yeah uh the cinemaplex odeon thing of oh this is this is a slightly bigger screen pay a couple extra bucks right you want to sit in the seat you want pay a couple extra bucks at that point it's like yeah you know how much this movie will cost if i watch it at home on netflix zero dollars i paid what i'm already paying i paid 16 dollars to see a haunted house (laughs) two at at like noon uh but i'm going to i'm going to rebut uh, Keith, very strongly on this, I adore reserve seating uh, uh, and go out of my way to to have that experience. There, there's the theater here in Chicago uh, called the Icon, um, and the, and uh, there was a theater just this last weekend that uh, that uh, my wife and I went out of our way to go to. It was about half an hour out of uh, away from where she lives, uh, the Angelica Film Cent- uh, mm. Film uh, Theater in um, in D- uh, D.C. or Reston or something. Who, who the hell knows? Somewhere in Virginia. Uh, but uh, but it's it's if you, if you're a plan if you're planners uh, as we are as we are you can kind of get you know choose the perfect seat and not have to worry about anything not have to worry about uh uh you know standing in a big line and, and rushing into the theater and trying to scramble scramble for seats and that sort of thing it, it takes a lot of the uh, pressure off of of going to the going to, to the theater and you can just sort of casually get there and have uh, and have everything taken care of and be you know, in your optimal seat, which which for us is is uh, in the center, uh, uh, behind the little rail, you, you put our feet on the rail. It's it's wonderful. So do you have I, to pay I, extra I, for I, foot rail privileges. You do not at the theater you're talking about. You cannot. I have been chastised. You have, my feet up but the the, the, they'll, they'll get there. They'll uh, you know they're not always watching. <laughs> <laughs> you can pay them an extra buck. Yeah, two you can bucks pay them a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. That would be kind of a funny surcharge. Uh, foot on the rail for surcharge, $2. Uh, but they also have, and this is how about this, and this is, uh, you know, I mean, I think this is, speaks to maybe the basic democracy of going to the movies. I mean, that, that icon also has uh, special theaters, uh, VIP theaters, where, uh, you know, if you want to play in a bit extra, you get a much nicer seat, and, you know, the, you can kind of bring your, uh, you go to the bar, you bring alcohol, bring gourmet food or whatever the hell they think gourmet food is like you can bring that in the theater um you know do we like that at all or is that also something we're rejecting scott this word democracy i do not think it means what you think it means <laughs> what uh, you're talking about is not the democracy of going to movies what you're talking about is the capitalism of going to movies no no i'm just no i'm saying this just rebuts it i mean like before you know i mean this is you know it used to be you stand everyone stands in a line they, they all have equal access to every seat in the theater etc but now this is uh this is creates you know to to, to quote the the um cineplex odeon person this is much more like an Airline. We might want to talk, turn to Matt for this. We have been in Chicago. We're deprived of the draft house um, experience. Oh, um, sure. But I, I have been to the Nighthawk in Brooklyn, which serves food during the film. And I did not find, I found that fine. I did not find that a distraction. Um, but you've been to the Nighthawk for sure. And you've been to the draft house as well. Do you find the um, the bringing and taking of, of food uh, throughout the film uh, problematic, Matt? Yeah, I, I, generally the uh, experience at, at those um, places is, is very good. And yeah, occasionally you'll have someone kind of walking through the, the bottom of your field of vision. But uh, the, they, the staff there definitely, at both of those places actually, where I've, I've had good experiences at, bo- at both, uh, they absolutely you know, go out of their way to, to be as you know, unobtrusive as is humanly possible. And uh, it's nice having, you know, certainly drinks and food at your seat. It's something that I have enjoyed at many screenings. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't have, I haven't had a problem with, uh, you know, uh, loud or, uh, or, uh, you know, noisy servers. They actually recently, I talked to one of the servers about this just because I was curious and they're actually, uh, at the Nighthawk, at least they're actually like trained to go into the movies, to go through the, 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 the aisles at certain times to kind of minimize the intrusions based on, you know, where it is in the movie or what's happening on screen and things like that. So uh, at, a, at a good place, they're actually kind of uh, paying attention to that stuff and are kind of catering the experience uh, to the movie. Uh, I'm, maybe that's not true everywhere, but at least in my experience, it's, it's been pretty good. When we were up in Milwaukee for the Milwaukee Film Festival, um, I saw a movie at the Fox Bay Cinema Grill up there. And those people are ninjas. I mean, they, they sneak in and, and get your order and get your food to you. And it's, it's amazingly quiet. Like, it's, it would be, I would be surprised if there were people in the audience that were disturbed by that. And given how hard it is to make it through a movie these days without being disturbed by someone around you, I, I think that's nothing short of a miracle. I was pretty surprised. Well, and this theater is also kind of constructed in a way to make it, to make it easier for, uh, you know, like, you know, I, I went to the Alamo Draft House at the Ritz in, in um, Austin, and, and, you know, there's sort of a, you know, a space where, where where waiters can walk that that kind of keep them a little bit out of your sight line. It's not like they're 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 going right in front of you. Um, but one of the questions that I, I had wanted to throw around to all of you is, uh, what amenities would your or do, does your ideal movie theater have, uh, Matt Singer? To me, it's it's almost like uh, getting what you actually pay for, uh, and so you know, if you're going to charge someone for, you know, IMAX 
uh, you're, like, have it be actual IMAX. I don't know if there's anything more frustrating, and I think someone already mentioned this, than you know, paying an extra $2 for quote-unquote you know, IMAX and getting into the theater, and it's just another slightly larger screen in a multiplex that is, uh, you know, barely any bigger than the, the normal experience. You know, I, when I recently saw, um, I think it was uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, you know, it was billed as an IMAX uh, screening, and they gave you, like, you know, special IMAX glasses, but the screen was barely larger than, you know, your standard multiplex screen, and for whatever you're you're paying, it's it's just, it's it's you don't feel like you're getting your money's worth. So whatever you're going to charge for amenities, at least make it worthwhile. Like I have seen uh, movies in IMAX, real genuine IMAX, like Gravity or The Last Mission Impossible, where I felt like paying extra was worth it. But I have also had experiences where, you know, you can pay three, four, five dollars extra, almost half a ticket price, and you're you're not getting you're not getting half of a better movie. You're getting a tiny bit better. So to me, the the best amenity is to just make like is is getting your money's worth, which is, I guess is not an not an amenity, but is uh, the thing that I would probably most appreciate. Tasha, what about you? I, I'm with Matt. Uh, getting my money's worth, and part of that is um, I go to see the movie, not to listen to the people behind me talk, and not to watch the. Uh, the screen of the person in front of me that's fiddling with their phone. So um, I know that uh, legal prohibitions in America make it impossible for movie theaters to have cell phone jammers. I would kind (laughs) of like to see that changed. And I I would like them to be able to have cell phone jammers and just, you know, let people know. Because there is a degree to which people can get by without their cell phones for 90 minutes. But having them there is a distraction. And and I understand why having them there is a distraction and why people want to whip them out. Um, Possibly if they didn't have the option of checking Facebook to see if anybody else is watching the movie that they're watching and has gotten to the same scene they're they're getting to, it would be less of a temptation. Um, But, you know, if we're going to make theaters more uh, airplane-like, and and this is sort of radical and I'm not sure I expect it to happen, um, but I, to some degree, I kind of wonder if some of the solution to the noise problems would be um, as as you have on airplanes, um, you know, most modern airplanes have uh, some kind of in-house music system where you bring your own headphones and plug them into the armrest, mm-hmm. and then you can control your own volume. As much as I love Dolby Atmos, you know, as as much as that surround sound thing is really cool and, and cool things have been done with it, there are theaters that I go into, and I feel like the guy in the old Maxell ad. I'm just the the force of the noise <laughs> coming from the, the speakers is flattening me in my chair. Like, I, I could take that down a bit. Um, but, you know, if I could wear my own noise-canceling headphones, which I wear at work effectively like like earplugs to keep from being disturbed by people talking around me. So if I could just bring my own noise-canceling headphones to the theater, plug them into my armrest, like adjust the sound so it's it's not blasting me out of my seat, but so I'm also cutting out ambient noise, the people in back of me could whisper and uh, ask each other questions about what's going on and who's that guy without disturbing me. And I could also avoid uh, <laughs> major ear, ear damage uh, from the attempt to turn up the volume so high that other people in the theater, you know, breathing is not going to disturb my movie watching experience. 
I also, if we are going to go in the, in the airplane direction, I, I, I kind of like a call button, frankly, uh, because I, it's, I guess I do, I've experienced fewer projection problems in the digital age. Sorry, Scott. Yeah, uh, but, but, but if something's out of focus or something's wrong, um, you know, you have to get up and, and tell an usher and you're missing part of the movie. And, 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 uh, um, sometimes your ushers aren't easy to find. My one of my worst uh, worst movie going experiences I had uh, was at a theater when I went to see a movie where they left the door open the entire time, so it was never fully dark. And and uh, the movie, don't worry, it wasn't a film that that really needed uh, total darkness. The film was uh, um, pitch black. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! So I really I want to do really quickly. Uh, I, I've constructed. Uh, uh, a series of, of either or questions uh, based on uh, what movie theaters are like when I was a projectionist uh, circa, you know, 1990 or before and uh, and then what they're like now. So are you all ready for this? Uh, uh, the, here we go. Stadium seating or gentle slope? Oh, stadium seating. Tasha? Stadium seating. Stadium seating. Uh, no question about that. 3D, digital 3D or, or completely no 3D at all ever? Uh, uh, Matt Singer? No 3D. Tasha? I'm going to go with 3D. Ooh. Uh, no 3D, but I'd like some exceptions. So maybe. No. No, no. no. He, are, he made that, it up. That's the binary. If you, I have to. You have to completely to, give it up. If I, if I have to choose, no 3D. Okay. Reserve seating or first come, first serve? Uh, Matt? First come, first serve. First come, first serve. First come, first serve. You are so wrong. Okay. I'm going to move on. <laughs> And Scott Tobias has to sit in the front row on the leftmost aisle, <laughs> craning his neck in two I directions. Well, as long as I'm paying less to do that. Okay. Popcorn or artisanal popcorn? <laughs> uh, Matt Singer. <laughs> I am going to say uh, handcrafted truffle oiled popcorn. <laughs> what about you, Tasha? Chipotle burrito I snuck into the theater in my bag. Oh, come on, Keith. I'll just go old-fashioned popcorn. Oh, there you go. You're, Keith is right on this. There, there are right answers to this, okay? <laughs> uh, fake IMAX or a regular old screen? Matt Singer. <laughs> I think they're the same thing, but I'll say a regular old screen. <laughs> Tasha? Oh, I don't know. I don't like being deceived, but the bigger the better. I'll go with fake IMAX. <laughs> Fake IMAX if I didn't if I only play paid regular screen prices. Oh boo! Can't have it all, man. You want to have it all? You can't have it all. Now this is the big <laughs> We're question. We're American consumers. We want to have it all. This definitely has a right answer, and, and the wrong answer is going to pain me. But I got to ask it: thirty-five millimeter or digital? Uh, Matt Singer. Uh, <laughs> uh, for uh, uh, for fear of, uh, for my own safety, I'm going to say 35 millimeter. See, Tasha's not going to fear her own safety. What do you I, say, Tasha? I'm not fearing my own safety. The question you just asked is, do you want to watch Scott Tobias cry right now? <laughs> digital, digital all the way. Oh, for God's sakes! Uh, uh, thir- 35. Millimeter. There you go. All right, uh, 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 Matt, uh, Tasha, uh, Keith, thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Now it's time for this week's game, which I'm calling The Crying Game, in honor of the fault of our stars and the long tradition of cinematic tearjerkers. No need for buzzers in this one, only handkerchiefs. I'm going to go around the table a few times and give each of you a multiple choice question related to tearjerkers. Pretty simple. Uh, Joining me are three of the Dissolve's biggest softies. (laughs) Uh, Keith Phipps. Hello. Nathan Rabin. Uh, And again, Matt Singer. Hello. I'm already crying. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going to cry. I'll make you cry. Uh, Matt, let's start with you. In Love Story, the famous line, love means never having to save your sorry, is uttered by A, Ally McGraw in the middle of the film and Ryan O'Neill at the end of the film, B, 
Ryan O'Neill in the middle of the film and Ali McGraw at the end of the film. C, by neither Ali McGraw nor Ryan O'Neill. D, just by Ali McGraw. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> love, love means never having to watch love stories. So this is going to be a guess for me. Yes. Uh, I'm going to say A. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. All right. That is uh, Matt Singer on the board. Okay, Nathan Raven, this is to you. Which of the following illnesses is not featured in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation? <laughs> a. Osler Weber Rendu. B. Leukemia. C. Alzheimer's. Or D. Stomach cancer. Hmm. I'm going to say that uh, he likes diseases that are, um, you know, romantic. And stomach cancer sounds a little bit gross for Nicholas Sparks. So I'm going to say uh, stomach cancer. <laughs> no, you are wrong. No! Stomach cancer was in the last song. No. Uh, uh, a. Osler Weber Rendu is a genetic blood disease that I have. Aww. <laughs> and I could die from, but probably not uh, anytime soon. Um, Keith Phipps. Hey, this is Scott, uh, Scott my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm, this podcast is dedicated to the last <laughs> yeah. Scott Tobias. Dying young, the Scott Tobias story. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, my, uh, it was actually featured on an episode of House. Hustler huh. Weber, Rindu. Yeah, uh, a great. non-lupus. <laughs> they yeah. diagnosed it as lupus it's before. Ne- it's never lupus. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, uh, Keith, uh, question three. In Steel Magnolias, who says the line, laughter through tears is my favorite emotion? Is it A, Sally Field, B, Dolly Parton, C, Shirley MacLaine, D, Olympia Dukakis, or E, Tom Scarrett? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut Tom Scarrett out. I, I believe that is B, Dolly Parton, but I couldn't... You are right about that on the board for Keith Phipps. Um, now, Scott, can you say that with a uh, with a honey-dripping draw? Uh Laughter through, <laughs> <laughs> laughter through tears is my. <laughs> oh my god! For a second there, I thought Dolly Parton was actually in the room with us. That was uncanny. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! We have another Steel Magnolias. Question. I just watched that movie uh, two days ago. It would have been perfect. Oh no! Well, this is you'll get this one. This will be great. Um, actually, this is one of the hardest ones. So, uh, so steal yourself for it. Uh, My heart will go on. The love ballad from Titanic won the Oscar for best original song, but not all popular love ballads win Oscars. Which of the following hits lost on Oscar night? A. Can you feel the love tonight by Elton John from The Lion King? B. Take my breath away by Berlin from Top Gun. C. I don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith from Armageddon. Or D, falling slowly by the swell season from once. Man, this is this is not this is not easy. Yeah, this is the toughest uh, question, probably. Thanks, appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna guess the Aerosmith song. Yes, you're right. Exactly. Nice. Good job. Uh, it lost to "When You Believe" from Prince of Egypt. Remember that? <laughs> remember that one? Let's the all sing it uh, together. <laughs> uh, all right, Nathan, to you. Brokeback Mountain chronicles a relationship between repressed cowboys that ends tragically. What's the memento that one of the cowboys clings to in the closing scene? A, a black cowboy hat. B, a sleeping bag. A, uh, C, <laughs> a saddle. Or D, an old shirt. I'm going to say D. That's an correct. Old an old Yay. shirt. Very sad. How can you not, how it can you not remember that? That was, that was a sad ass Such movie. a great ending. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Keith. Yes. Who plays the second student to stand on his desk and say, oh, captain, my captain, and Dead Poet Society? Hmm. Is it A, Robert Sean Leonard, B, Josh Charles, C, Gail Hansen, or D, Ethan Hawke? I believe Ethan Hawke is the 
first one, or is he? Well, I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Um, <laughs> you can spoil it. <laughs> I'm gonna say what was B? Josh Charles. B. Josh Charles. Yes, correct. Josh Charles. Put him on the board. So, so Keith and uh, and, and Matt are, are currently tied. No one's only one missed so far. I I, I thought I thought that was an easy quiz. It is an easy quiz. Matt, this is to you. Stella Dallas is one of the great melodramas of female self-sacrifice. What does Stella, played by Barbara Stanwyck, watch her daughter do through the window at the end? A, get married. B, reunite with her father and his wealthy, more proper family. C, commit suicide. D, take part in a debutante ball. You don't have any other Brokeback Mountain questions. No, I don't. Uh, Can I have the choices one more time? Okay, A, get married. B, reunite with her father and his wealthy, more proper family. C, commit suicide. D, take part in a debutante ball. I'm going to say B. Uh, no. Ugh. A, get married. Yeah. Very sad. All right. Uh, Nathan, uh, to you. Oh, this is right in your wheelhouse. I'm going to say Oliver's story, the thrilling follow-up to Love Story. Which of the following 80s sitcoms features the young star of the champ? A, the facts of life. B, Mr. Belvedere. C, Growing Pains. D, Silver Spoons. That would be Silver Spoons. Can you sing the theme song? Uh, here we are, face to face, a couple of silver spoons, hoping to find we're one of a kind. Do Letting it show together. Making it happen together. together. Taking the time each day to learn about those things you just can't buy. <laughs> you don't have to pay copyright that for that, do we? All right. If, if we did tiebreaker, Nathan's going to win on that <laughs> on, the, on the silver spoons. Uh, Based on harmonizing, not the answer. <laughs> All right, that that was either one of the better or one of the worst moments in dissolved podcast history. Uh, Keith, uh, this yes. is to you. No saying. Which of the following sea creatures plays a crucial role in seven? <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Nine. Which of the following sea creatures plays a crucial role in Seven Pounds? A. A starfish. B. An octopus. C. A jellyfish. Or D. A rainbow trout. I have seen Seven Pounds. Yes. And I can't remember, but I believe it was B. An octopus. No. C. A jellyfish. Oh. What was the context? I think somebody killed. Like. Was there a suicide involving a jellyfish? Like you know what? Yeah, there's a, there's some. It, it is the most popular form of suicide. It would be suicide so much cooler if someone committed suicide by octopus. Yeah, it's, much, yeah. it's very cinematic. Um, okay, this is to Matt. Uh, what, yes. Well, first of all, let's get let's get let's get a total. Let's, where, where are we at? Where are we at score wise? Everybody's got two. Oh my goodness! But keep in mind, uh, keep in mind, if everyone gets this right or everyone gets these, this last round wrong. Nathan wins because of the silver spoons <laughs> thing. Okay. What if what if I sing the theme song to Perfect Strangers? Does that get me anything? Uh, <laughs> negative one. Negative one oh. for Perfect Strangers. Um, okay. The title, 21 Grams, refers to the weight of the human soul. The poster lists other items that also weigh 21 grams. Which of these is not among them? A. <laughs> a, a stack of nickels. B, a chocolate bar. C, a hummingbird, or D, a notepad. Which of these does not weigh 21 grams? Or maybe it does weigh 21 grams. It's just not on the poster. A stack of nickels, a chocolate bar, a hummingbird, a notepad. I'm going to say the hummingbird. No. Hummingbird weighs 21 grams. 
Uh, sorry about that. Human soul, hummingbird, way the same thing. Um, <laughs> no, the, the correct answer on that is a notepad, D. I thought I, I actually spent a little bit of time thinking about things that weigh 21 grams. I did a Google search, stuff that weighs 21 grams, which is just ridiculous and stupid. So you, you know where I, how uh, smart I am just based on that. Uh, question 11 to Nathan. Yes. Pay it forward. In Pay It Forward, an 11-year-old named Trevor comes up with the idea of doing three charitable deeds for others who will then go on to do three charitable deeds themselves. It keeps multiplying, as you can imagine. Which of the following is not one of Trevor's good deeds? A, letting a homeless man live in his garage. Tim Caviezel. <laughs> it might be. B, setting up his mom with his social studies teacher. Kevin Spacey. <laughs> what, what's Kevin Spacey's secret there? Uh, what's his terrible, what's his, what's his, what's the terrible thing he's living with? Oh, goodness. Uh, the heartbreak of psoriasis. Okay. That's <laughs> actually correct. <laughs> C, protecting his friend's friend from bullies. Or D, donating his clothes to a hurricane relief effort. I'm going to say C, helping a friend from bullying. No, Nathan. No! You don't, don't you remember the end of the I, movie? I vaguely remember him having no friends. But yeah, but, the, yeah, oh, but, he makes friends via the But the then, but then the end of there. the film, remember? Oh, what happens to him? He gets stabbity-stabbity. Yeah, switchblade. That's unfortunate. Oh, my gosh. Wow, Keith, this is but wide open. But he brought open. it upon himself. This is wide With open for you, man. Forward. Are you ready? Yes. Yes, question 12. This is, this, this is for the win. God. In which of the following tearjerkers does the dog live in the end? <laughs> A, Old Yeller. B, Marley and Me. C, I Am Legend. D, Homeward Bound. E, None of the Above. Oh, well, I thought I knew it until you threw an E as a possibility. I believe the dog lives in Homeward Bound. Yes, yeah. very good. Oh, man, I had that set it up as a, as a terrible trap. Uh, but Keith Phipps squeaks out the win. Huzzah. And what else is new? And is there is there a, a dry eye in the house right now? <laughs> now I feel like I must uh, commit suicide by octopus. Uh, <laughs> it, it takes a lot of time. Like, oh, jellyfish! It but it, but it's jellyfish. very but it's very cinematic. It is. Uh, it is. The, oh, the, uh, yeah. Octopus could do the dance of death. Yeah. Octop- yeah. You know. I, mean, I, th- I think there's one tentacle on your nostrils and one in a, a couple on your mouth, and so. uh, you're you're done. Me and the octopi. Uh, it's it's very graceful. Uh, Matt, uh, Nathan, Keith, thanks much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in... Genevieve Kosky. And... Matt Singer. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy their recommendation. Whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Pandering to me is encouraged and will likely give you an edge. Uh, these are our two youngest dissolvers, by the way. Oh, isn't that nice? So much energy in this room right now. Um, so, uh, Genevieve, let's start with you. Are you ready? Uh, yes. Three, ready? two, one, go. Okay, I love listening to film scores while I work, and I recently discovered the film scores section of Songza, which is a website and app that curates playlists based on your activity, mood, genre, whatever. Each playlist is anywhere from 40 to 100 songs long, so you're never in danger of running out of stuff to listen to. And there are more than 20 film score-related playlists divided by music style and genre of movie, including epic and electronic film scores, vintage European soundtracks, music from James Bond movies, spaghetti western soundtracks. Uh, Scott, you might like this, Something Terrible is About to Happen, which is atmospheric horror. <laughs> oh, uh, my gosh. That was some solid pandering. I like yeah. it. That's a, that's a, that's a high bar. Uh, Matt Singer, are you ready? Uh, yes, I am ready. Okay, three, two, one, go. 
Okay, I just watched and enjoyed the documentary Birth of the Living Dead, a documentary about the making of George Romero's world-changing zombie masterpiece Night of the Living Dead. Romero himself is on hand for extensive interviews about the production process, and critics like Mark Harris and Elvis Mitchell discuss the movie's meaning and impact on popular culture. It's a brief film at 75 minutes, probably not in-depth enough to justify paying a separate admission price, but it's now streaming on Netflix where you don't have to pay anything extra. Oh, wow. Fast. Both of you all. Very, very speedy. Um... I'm not really sure what to, who to go for on this one. It's a, it's a it's a close contest. Both things I really like, which is which helps. Um, uh, but I think I might give uh, Genevieve uh, the Ooh. the win on this one, uh, just because I you know this is uh, this sounds like something that can affect my everyday life. Not just not just seventy minutes of my time, but all of my time, all every waking moment listening to film soundtracks. Um, even though it's sort of an advertisement for songs, is it not? I suppose, but I mean, you, I suppose you could hunt down and make your own playlist. No. But this is just on, on, very on some very inferior easy streaming service. All right, uh, Genevieve and, and Matt. Uh, Songs that did not pay me to do this. I just enjoy the the project. Hey, if they do, do if they do something well, they do something well. Uh, Genevieve, Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. That does it for episode 21 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thought, please email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you'd like, we'd encourage you to post ratings and or comments on the show on iTunes. Uh, Some podcasts would tell you negative ones are totally encouraged too, but I'm going to discourage that. Say something nice or don't say anything at all.